Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. As a church, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. Um, probably a couple months now. That's typically how we preach um, here at Cornerstone. So we'll take a particular book and then we'll just work through that book from start to finish. We think that does several good things. Number one, it keeps every passage in context. So every passage we end up at, we've had the passages that have gone before. So it, it helps us understand kind of the big picture of what's going on in the book, which is helpful. Context is always good. But then it also forces us to preach on all of God's word. So if a difficult verse comes up, we, we don't pivot around it. We don't ignore it. No, we're forced to hear God's word because we're just working through the entire Bible book. So here we are in Galatians towards the middle now, Galatians chapter three, verses one through nine. There's kind of a bare bones outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, as we move along. <coughs> um, Maria's not here this morning because Nora is sick. So Maria's home with the kids. Um, but that's not why I'm sharing this story. I did ask her, can I share this story? And she said, that's fine. Uh, Maria has four other siblings. There were five of them, but she only has one brother. So he had four sisters, one brother which in a lot of ways made, made things tough for him, tough for John, her brother. But Maria in particular gave him a hard time, which she has repented of. I've seen her myself say to John, I'm so sorry that I put you through those particular things. But I'll give you one example. So one time she tells John, hey, so the rest of the kids, we're all part of this family. Mom and dad have never told you this, but you're not, you're not really part of this family. And so John thinks to himself, Probably, you know, he's, he's nervous about it, but he's probably thinking this is ridiculous. So Maria goes, <clears throat> she gets all of the girls' birth certificates and she leaves John's in the drawer and she brings them out and she lays them out and she says, see, so here's all the birth certificates of the kids. Yours, yours isn't there, which I think John burst out in tears, right? Who knows how much damage that had on him. But again, Maria has, has asked forgiveness but this is a pretty troubling idea as a child that you might not really be part of the family that you thought you were part of. Okay, well, well, that's what these Galatian Christians were being faced with. That's what the false teachers around the churches of Galatia were telling them. The false teachers were saying, we know that you think you're part of God's family because Paul and these other guys have told you that you're part of this Christian family. You've become God's children. But really, these false teachers were saying, really, you aren't yet. And the reason you aren't is because you've only placed faith in Christ, but you haven't done some of these extra things you have to do in order to be made part of God's family. In particular, you haven't had the males in your family get circumcised, which remember, it was part of the old covenant in the Old Testament. So they would say, yeah, you, you haven't quite done enough. You haven't gone this extra step. And that means... You're not really part of God's family. And I wonder how, how you would answer that charge. So if somebody said to you, hey, I know you think you're, you're one of God's children. You think you're part of the family of Christ, but I'm telling you, you aren't really because you lack this thing or you lack that thing. I, I wonder how you would answer that charge. How do you really know that you're part of God's family? How do I really know that I'm part of God's family. How do you know whether you'll remain a part of God's family? Could you maybe lose that identity if you don't measure up in some particular way? Those are significant questions, right? 
that's kind of the whole ball game. What we're banking on as Christians is that we're, we're part of God's family. So these are important questions. So how does God answer them? What does God tell the Christians around Galatia and us here this morning about how to answer that question, about how to know if you're in God's family? Well, hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 3, 1 through 9. Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so to answer this question for us, how do we know if we're part of God's family, especially with these charges of the false teachers, what they're telling the Galatian churches, what some even churches would tell us today about these extra things we need to do to be part of God's family. So how do we know? Well, Paul points them back to remember two particular things. And that's the way we'll look at this passage. So the first point is, remember what you had to do to get the Holy Spirit. By answering that question, that'll help us answer the question of how we know if we're part of God's family. And then remember what Abraham had to do to be given an innocent status in God's eyes. That's the second point. So, so first, look back at verse one. Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay, Paul's done this a couple of times. He remains dumbfounded that the Galatian Christians are thinking about pivoting away from the one true gospel. They're thinking about accepting what these false teachers are telling them, that, that their status before the Lord, it doesn't only take faith in Christ, it takes faith in Christ plus some particular good work or good works. They're considering accepting this as true. And Paul just can't believe it. It's just a crazy thought for Paul. So right off the bat, he, he calls them foolish. He says they're acting like fools. He asks this rhetorical question in verse one, who has bewitched you? The way the Christian Standard Bible translates it, it says, who has cast an evil spell on you? So what he's getting at, he's using this language. For Paul, it's like there's no logical explanation why they're considering turning from the one true gospel. It's almost like somebody has cast a spell on them is what it looks like to, to Paul. And he tells us why it makes no sense in the second sentence of verse one. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay, this is an important verse. What does he mean by it? Because these Galatian Christians, they didn't actually see Jesus get crucified. No, Galatia is a far away from Jerusalem. No, here's what he's saying. He's saying that you guys have heard the message about Jesus Christ. But this is what's significant. What Paul makes clear, when somebody has heard the gospel, that's as good as Jesus being crucified in front of their eyes. That's intense, isn't it? Think about that for a second. He's saying when somebody is presented with the one true gospel, they might as well 
have seen Jesus be crucified with their own eyeballs. It brings with it that kind of responsibility. It brings with it that kind of accountability. It's kind of like those situations where you have to sign one of those legal acknowledgements that, hey, I'm going to do this thing and I understand all of this bad stuff could happen to me. So I'm signing up to do this thing, even though I see all of these potential problems, these potential dangers. Well, that's what happens when a sinner hears the gospel. That's like that sinner signing off on a sheet of paper that says, yeah, I've seen Christ crucified. It's like I've seen Christ crucified with my own eyes. It brings with it an accountability. And that's significant, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus. Because already in this gathering, we have all heard about the gospel. We've sung about the gospel in every song. We've heard about the gospel in the scripture readings. We've heard about the gospels in the prayers that we've prayed together. Now we're hearing about the gospel in Galatians chapter three. So this is significant. God will hold all of us accountable to believe what it is that we have heard. When we've heard about the gospel, it's as good as us standing there on Calvary and as if we had watched his crucifixion with our own eyes. It brings built-in accountability with it. As Paul makes clear in verse one, hearing the gospel is as good as seeing Jesus crucified. So of course, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the answer is to respond to the offer of the gospel. Respond by turning from your sin and coming to Christ, putting your full hope and confidence in Jesus to pay for your sins. So talk to me if you have questions about that. Talk to one of the other elders here. Send me an email if you want to correspond via email. But let's talk about that, about coming to Christ, trusting in him alone for your salvation. So, so Paul, he's thoroughly perplexed by the Galatians. Why are you guys turning away from this gospel? Verse one, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So all this to say, he's saying you guys should know better. Okay, but then he moves on and Paul builds a case. So where does he go to make the case for the one true gospel as opposed to what these false teachers are, are peddling? So again, they're, they're telling these young Christians they haven't really become part of God's family because they haven't yet had the males of their household circumcised. So where does Paul go to correct them? Well, he goes to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which might seem counterintuitive, but we're gonna see how that fits. And this is our first main point this morning. Remember what you had to do as a Christian. Remember what you had to do to get the Holy Spirit. Look at the question Paul asks in verse two. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So again, he asks a question about the Holy Spirit. He circles back around, asks the same kind of question down in verse five. Look there. <coughs> Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, so why does Paul ask this question? What does the reception of the Holy Spirit, the process of God giving us the Holy Spirit, what does that have to do with the question about who has become part of God's family? That initially you might seem like two different questions unrelated for Paul, they're related. What's the connection? Well, the connection, I think it's explained really clearly a page over in chapter four. So flip a page over, look at Galatians four, verse six. 
Look at what Paul tells us there about this relationship between the Holy Spirit and being part of God's family. Chapter four, verse six, Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, so what does Paul say is the condition for receiving the Holy Spirit? He says you, you receive the Holy Spirit if you are God's son, which isn't gender specific there. So it's sons and daughters. This is for males and females. You might know this, the ancient Near East, the first century here, this part of the world. So only males could be heirs. So if the parents died, then, then all of that went to the oldest son. So it didn't matter if a daughter was older. So, so in the New Testament, when we read verses like that, because you are sons, of course, that's talking about males and females, male and female Christians, but it's, it's getting at what they would have understood about the inheritance. So again, what does Paul say? What kind of person is it that receives the Holy Spirit? Well, the person receives the Holy Spirit at the point when they are made God's child. Those two things go together. If you become God's child, then you get the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the presence of the Spirit, that's one way God gives us to know that we are part of his family. Listen to, to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. There he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, so what's a surefire way to know if you're a Christian? Figure out if you have the Holy Spirit, because those two things always go together. One, one frustrating thing about COVID that we've all seen over the past few years is it can present in so many different ways. So if you have a fever, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have COVID, right? It could be something else. And then somebody can have COVID without a fever. Same with a runny nose, same with a cough. You might not have any symptoms. There are no symptoms that are necessarily correlated with having COVID. That's one thing that's made it so difficult to, to figure out. But see, the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. There's always a correlation. Everybody that has the Holy Spirit is God's child. Everybody who is God's child has the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so you're probably beginning to see Paul's strategy here. So the, these false teachers are saying that you only become part of God's family when you trust in Christ, plus get circumcised or have the male members of your household circumcised. But see, if, if Paul, if as Paul says, the Holy Spirit is only given to people that are in God's family, then, then that makes the question of our passage really relevant, or that makes his question, Paul's question here, really relevant, relevant for this debate. Verse two in our passage again, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, well, the Galatian Christians would know that they received the Holy Spirit not by performing any good works. They would know that they would receive the Spirit simply by trust in Christ. It's, it's not like they had had to display obedience to God in certain areas before they got the Holy Spirit. No, they received the Holy Spirit the second that they simply trusted in Christ. Paul teaches the exact same thing in Ephesians 1, verse 13. Listen to this verse. And there he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so again, what has to take place in order for somebody to get the Holy Spirit? He has to believe the gospel. She has to believe the gospel. That's it. 
That's the only requirement. No good works, no ceremonies, nothing else. Simply believing the gospel and God gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Galatian Christians had received the Spirit. Paul assumes that in his argument here. In, in his question in verse two, he's assuming that they got the Holy Spirit. He knows that they won't object. They had the Holy Spirit and they had seen evidence of the Spirit. Look down at verse five again. Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he knows the Galatians had seen the Spirit at work among them. So he can point them back. Hey, remember, you've seen the Spirit work in you. You've seen the Spirit work among you. When you first trusted in Christ, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And of course, the Galatians would have said, yes, we know that. And that's a good question for us. Think back in your own personal history as a Christian. Think about your own Christian life. When you first trusted in Christ, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, to answer that question, let's think about what the Holy Spirit does. A couple of things. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a few. The Spirit grows you in your conviction of sin. That's the thing the Holy Spirit does. So, so as a brand new believer, were you convicted about certain attitudes and actions that you would not have been convicted about a month before as a non-Christian? You were, weren't you? You were convicted of sin. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. So when that happened, as a, as a brand new Christian, did, did you seek to turn away from those sins? Not that you turned away perfectly, but at least you were trying to turn away from those sins. You did, didn't you? That was a work of the Holy Spirit. Did you desire to read your Bible and to pray and to gather with God's people? Even as a brand new Christian, you did, didn't you? That is a result of the Holy Spirit. Did you start to grow in the attributes that Paul lists at the end of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22 through 23? So did you grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? You didn't do any of those things perfectly, but did you have those things in a greater measure than you did a month before as a non-Christian? You did, didn't you? That's evidence of the Holy Spirit. See, the Galatians had seen the same sort of fruit, and and Paul's point in all of this is to show them they didn't have to do any good works to get that Holy Spirit. They didn't have to get circumcised. The Galatians weren't circumcised here. That's why the false teachers are saying, you got to get your household circumcised. But Paul's saying, did you have to do that in order to get the Spirit? No. They didn't have to get baptized to get the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to join the church to get the Holy Spirit or do some good deeds or love people well, or take the Lord's Supper. They didn't have to do anything in order to get the Holy Spirit. They merely had to believe in Christ. Verse two again, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? They didn't have to offer God any obedience. They merely had to respond to the gospel by trusting in Christ with faith. That and that alone is the point at which God gave them the Holy Spirit. And once again, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the sign given to someone who is God's child. Chapter four, verse six again. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Paul's saying, Galatians, okay, you're, you're nervous about whether you're really in God's family or not, because that's what those teachers are saying. Are you nervous about that? Well, if you receive the Holy Spirit, then you're in God's family. 
That's what Paul is saying here. And, and he's saying, if you'll remember, you didn't have to perform or obey in any way to get that Holy Spirit. You received membership in God's family through faith alone in Christ alone. And as for you as a Christian, wasn't that your experience? So, so let's test it real quick. This may sound a little bit abstract. Let's try to test it. So the alternate view to what Paul is saying is that a Christian would have to do something to get the Holy Spirit, right? You'd have to perform some task, participate in some ceremony. You'd have to do something apart from faith in Christ. So you'd trust in Jesus. That's one thing. But then you've got to do something in order to get the Holy Spirit. So let's test that. Okay, what's the very first obedience Jesus commands of his people? Because if we can locate that first obedience, then we can basically use our experience and use this as a test. What's the first thing Jesus calls us to do? We see it in Matthew 28, the great commission given to his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Okay, so that's the first directive that Jesus gives to a new Christian a brand new disciple, the first thing the Lord asks them to do is to get baptized. So, so if any obedience is part of the Christian's justification, if any obedience is required to be part of God's family, well, it's got to be at least this one, because it's the first thing that Jesus calls us to do. And, and there are actually lots of churches today who would say just that. They would say, listen, the way for you to get the Holy Spirit the way for you to become part of God's family, part of that is faith in Christ, definitely. But it's faith in Christ plus get baptized. So lots of, lots of churches of Christ will say that. Not all of them. There's a spectrum there. But some churches of Christ will say that. Some, some of uh, what are oftentimes called Christian churches will say that. Again, not all of them, but some of them. So it's, it's a live issue today, just like it was in Galatia with circumcision. Okay, so with this test case, think about your own experience. For most of us, there was a gap between us becoming a Christian, trusting in Christ, and getting baptized. Now, for you, it may have been, it could have been years. But for a lot of us, I think it was months. For, for lots of us, probably weeks. But let's say for you, no, you trusted in Christ, and then you were immediately baptized. My guess is there were at least a couple of minutes there before you were baptized. But again, I think for most of us, we probably had at least a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. So think back to that time of your life. You had trusted in Jesus, but you were waiting to get baptized. Did you have the spirit inside of you during that interim period? Well, were you convicted of sin? Were you growing in obedience to Christ? Were you drawn to his word and to his people? You were, weren't you? You didn't have to wait until baptism to get those benefits. You didn't have to wait till baptism to get the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. That's because he gave you his spirit the moment that you trusted in Christ. Ephesians 1.13 again, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Our passage, verse two, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You received the spirit by faith. We saw in our congregational reading this morning, Acts 15, Peter is talking to the apostles about how he saw a group of Gentiles become Christians. That was sort of sketchy ground 
because the Jews didn't know how that was all going to shake out. They knew, okay, Christ is the Savior. Salvation comes by trusting in him alone. But you remember the Jews had always been God's unique people. So they didn't really know what was going to happen with these non-Jews. And Peter is saying, no, I saw this with my own eyes. I preached the gospel. You remember that's in Acts 10. And then I saw these new believers get the Holy Spirit. And if you'll remember, that was before they were baptized. In fact, that's why Peter decides to baptize them. It's the same with us. We received the Holy Spirit apart from any good works on our part. Not baptism, not loving people well, not church membership, not, not anything. And see, since God only gives the Spirit to his children, that means we became part of God's family before we had done any good works, before we had obeyed him in any way. Our entrance into God's family came through faith alone in Christ alone. And in fact, it, it could be no other way. There's no other option. Paul makes this clear. Look at verse 3. He charges the Galatians with this for considering this false gospel of faith plus works. Verse three, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Okay, so he, he comes back and he asks him this question about, how, you know, how foolish are you guys? He comes back, he's still dumbfounded. He can't understand why they're considering turning away from the one true gospel. But then he asks this other question. He says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul, I, I think he's really boiling it down here. He, I think he's pulling back the curtain to show what the big problem is with somebody thinking that they have to get circumcised or baptized or do any good work in order to be made God's child. And here it is. By doing that, they're saying that it wasn't the spirit that saved them. It was their own moral effort. That's the big problem with thinking that our obedience has to do with us becoming part of God's family. Look again at the second question in verse three. He says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, so he's, he's already established these Galatian Christians that their Christian life began with baptism. That's what he just did. He said, think about what you had to do to get to get the Holy Spirit, right? Or it, it began with, uh, with the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. Their Christian life began with the Spirit. It's given to them right off the bat the second they trusted in Christ. Just like all of us who are believers, we were begun by the Spirit. But see, he says they're in danger of thinking it wasn't really the Spirit who had done the work, but, but it was their own moral effort. Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being perfected by the flesh? That term flesh is oftentimes used in the New Testament to summarize our capacity apart from the Holy Spirit. So the things that we can do on our own, the flesh, in the flesh, in our sinful nature. And we understand that we can't do anything good in the flesh. Flip, flip over to chapter five, verse 17. And there Paul says this. He contrasts flesh with spirit. Chapter five, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So Paul, he's pointed out to them how ridiculous it is to think that any human obedience was, was part of our salvation, whether it's circumcision or baptism or, or any other good work, because the flesh apart from the spirit can't do anything good. It can't do anything good. So, so the flesh didn't take part in getting the spirit. Again, that's what the false teachers are saying. You know, you got to trust in Christ and you got to do this particular good work 
in order to be right in God's eyes. But Paul says that's, that's ridiculous. He says the flesh didn't take part in getting the spirit. It's actually the exact opposite. You don't have to do good works to get the spirit. No, you actually need the spirit to do good works. The Bible makes that really clear. Listen to Romans 8, verse 3. There Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul says sinners need the Holy Spirit to obey God. To walk in obedience to the Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to do that. Remember what Jesus says was necessary for a good work to be pleasing for God, for something to be considered worship. This is what Jesus says in John 4, 24. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So obedience is only acceptable to God if it's offered through the Holy Spirit. John 6, verse 63, is it, this, or it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Or Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's pointing out to them how ridiculous it is to think that circumcision is required to be part of God's family. That, that would reverse the order. That would say that we do good with our own efforts, that from the flesh we do something in order to get the spirit. But, but the gospel says the exact opposite. Now, all you had to do to get the spirit was to believe in Christ. And it's that spirit that has produced any obedience in you. Look at verse four. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So Paul, he's still exasperated. He's, he's saying, you guys are close to blowing this whole thing. You're about to lose the gospel if you enter in your own moral efforts as part of your becoming God's child. If you think you've been perfected by the flesh. And again, all that Paul is getting at here, it all gets back to the same idea. The way that you've been part of, been made part of God's family is through faith alone, not through any works. But then Paul gives a second piece of evidence in our passage for how the Galatians can know they're part of God's family. And here he doesn't appeal to their experience. He appeals to the Old Testament. Look at verse six. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so, so to battle this false gospel around the Galatian churches, Paul's had them remember their baptism. You know, when were you baptized? When did you get the Holy Spirit? Or I'm sorry, he reminds them about the Spirit. When did you get the Holy Spirit? Through faith alone and Christ alone. You didn't have to do anything to get it. Now he asked them to remember what Abraham had to do to be declared righteous by God. And it's our second point. Remember what Abraham had to do to be declared righteous by God. And the answer is the exact same. Verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God, he declared Abraham to be righteous, not because of any good works in Abraham, but merely by faith. He believed God and God counted that as righteousness. And Abraham is the most important example Paul could have grabbed because in the Jews' eyes, he was kind of the most important guy. 
He's the one that everybody traced their lineage back to. So he was, you know, the patriarch of the entire family. But, but then he was also a guy that they considered to be really righteous. He was the beginning of the Jewish nation. He was the one God picked to produce the entire nation from that man. So in our thinking, he'd be sort of a mix between like George Washington and Mother Teresa and your grandmother. All those things wrapped into one. That's the way that they revered Abraham. So everybody always tried to appeal to Abraham. In Jewish circles, if you could get Abraham on your side, then you would win the argument. And see, that's what these false teachers had tried to do. It looks like they were appealing to Abraham because Abraham was the first one to get circumcised. It happens in Genesis chapter 17. So it looks like the false teachers were saying, hey, look, Abraham to be justified had to get circumcised. So you new Christians, you have to get circumcised too. So they were saying, okay, what's your answer to that, Paul? So Paul's answer is to point back to the words of Genesis. Flip over to Genesis 15 if you've got a Bible open. Let's see where Paul is quoting from here in our passage. He quotes from Genesis 15. This is verse 1 and following. Genesis chapter 15. Paul quotes from it here in Galatians 3. This is what we're told. Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, so, so you might remember this, but in Genesis 12, God had told Abraham that God was gonna bless him. He was gonna produce a huge family through him. And then he was gonna bless the world through that family of Abraham's. But see, Abraham's wondering how that's going to work. That's Genesis 12, because by Genesis 15, he doesn't have any children. So he and his wife have not been able to get pregnant. So he's saying to the Lord, we must have to figure out a plan B, right? We must have to figure out a way for me to produce a child, not through Sarah, but to sort of figure it out, sort of rig it a different way. Well, in Genesis 15, God is saying to Abraham, no, I'm going to fulfill this promise the way that I said I was. I'm going to produce in you a family. So he makes this promise in Genesis 15 that we just read. He reaffirms this promise to Abraham. Okay, so what does Abraham do then? Does he go out and start trying to make that plan work? Does, does, he, does he go out and do a lot of stuff for the Lord, and then maybe God will declare him righteousness after that? No, none of that. We're told what he does. Genesis 15, 6, and Abram believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. So God declared him to be righteous, not, not because of him actually being righteous or doing good things. No, it's by faith alone. The same thing we've been learning all through Galatians. God declared Abram to be righteous by faith apart from works. You can flip back to our passage now if you're there in Genesis. It's just like Paul quotes here in verse six of our passage. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, now look at what Paul says, that Abraham's status of righteousness 
what that has to do with the Galatian Christians, what that has to do with us here this morning. Verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So the way for non-Christians to become part of Abraham's family, which is God's family, is faith. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 12, the, the passage that JJ read earlier, verse eight. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So see, it was, it was always God's plan to bring non-Jews into his family, which is good news for us, because I think most of us, all of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. It was always God's plan to bring non-Jews into his family, but, but God brings us as Gentiles in the exact same way he brought Abraham in, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And it's important to notice this. God has always saved people in the exact same way. So it's not like in the Old Testament, people were saved by maybe trusting the Lord plus good works or fulfilling the law perfectly. And then we're justified by faith alone. No. Salvation has always worked the exact same way, Old Testament and New Testament. It's always been through faith alone. That's why in the middle of verse eight, Paul could talk about God preaching the gospel to Abraham. You may not have thought about it like that before, but the Old Testament is about the gospel too. The entire Bible start to finish is about the gospel. God has always only had one way of saving people. The only difference was that Abraham was, was having faith looking forward toward the Messiah. We have faith looking back toward the Messiah. But salvation has always been by faith alone. The gospel in the Old Testament is the same as the gospel in the New Testament. And that makes the entire Bible relevant to Christians, doesn't it? That's one central question. When you're reading the Old Testament devotionally, it's one question you want to be asking yourself is, where is the gospel in this chapter? You know, it's one thing, the equip hour on Sunday nights, the Zoom call that we have that Pastor Tim leads. Man, Tim's great at that, isn't he? We don't boast in Tim for that. We boast in the Lord for that. But Tim is spring-loaded, just like the Bible is, to show us where's the gospel in this Old Testament passage? Where's the gospel in Exodus? Because the Old Testament is all about the gospel. We become God's children through faith apart from works, the same way Abraham did. Verse 7 Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. But probably the best part about Paul's argument, the most clever part, is the part he doesn't even have to make explicit. It's really, really clever. I think they all would have seen it. Because remember, what the false teachers are saying is, you got to be circumcised in order to be part of God's family. What Paul just did was show us Abraham was justified. He was made part of God's family in Genesis 15. Okay, so when does he get circumcised? Genesis 17. And as any child knows, the number 15 comes before the number 17. So Abraham, Father Abraham, was justified before he was circumcised. It cuts completely against what these false teachers are saying. He was justified through faith alone in Christ alone. The same thing uh, has happened to us. We were justified before we were baptized. We were justified before we did any good works, before we joined a church, before we took the Lord's Supper. Now we were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that made us instantly 
part of God's family. So as we close, here's the upshot of all of this for us as Christians. If you were brought into God's family before you had any good works under your belt, if you were brought in before you had given any spirit-produced obedience to any of God's commands, which you were, if you were brought in before you could do any of that, that means your standing in God's family is irrespective of your works. It's not related to those things. You were brought in before you had any good works. And what that means is you're not going to fall out of this family. If you're a Christian, you won't lose your status as God's child. So think about it in particulars. If you as a Christian, if you have a particularly bad day tomorrow, so if you are sinfully impatient with your kids and then you're sinfully anxious at work, or if you're lustful or prideful or jealous, if you have a day where you think you're slipping backwards on just about every area of sin in which you struggle, God is not going to revoke your status as his child. Is that not good news? You could slip back. You could fail to offer God what he deserves, which we all do anyway. But let's say tomorrow you have a particularly bad day. If you're a Christian, he's not going to revoke your status as his child. He's not going to take back his Holy Spirit from you. As a Christian, your, your status as God's child isn't going anywhere. And that's because your status as God's child was never based on your performance to begin with. It was always based completely on Jesus's performance. And as a Christian, you've been eternally connected to him through faith alone in Christ alone. And the Holy Spirit inside of you is God's pledge to you of that reality. Paul says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful, Father, that our standing in your eyes wasn't dependent on anything we did it wasn't dependent on our baptism. It wasn't dependent on our membership in a church or taking the Lord's Supper or some particular prayer, some Bible reading, some good deeds that we performed for others. No, Father, we understand your word is so clear on this point. We became your children when we trusted in Jesus. That was it. We had no good works to bring, Father. So, so all we could do was bring ourselves empty and broken. And Father, those of us who are Christians, that's what we did. And in that exact moment, you declared us innocent of our sins because of Christ. You gave us your spirit and you made us your child. You will not revoke that status. You won't call the spirit back to yourself. 
Father, you gave us all those things before we had anything to offer you. They depend entirely on Jesus's work on our behalf. I'm so thankful for our Savior. We pray, Father, you would always keep that gospel clear before our eyes. We pray as members of this church, we would regularly be reminding each other of that gospel. And Father, that we would glorify you for it. Take a moment now, pray individually and silently that the Spirit would press these truths in on your heart. Let's do that now for a few moments. <laughs>